Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Bukolsky. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And lately, you may have heard me talking a little bit more about the highest level of human achievement, what it goes into achieving things beyond the possibility of human potential, where people will stop, others will continue to go. What is it that continues to drive people past world-class standards and well into setting these limits and boundaries that really have never been explored before. That's really an area of interest for me. And today's guest, Joe DeFranco, is a coach of champions. Joe teaches, coaches, and trains people from all around the world in all the top sports from the NFL, Major League Baseball, WWE Wrestling. Joe is known for being one of the top guys in strength and conditioning. He's got his own certification. We get into some of the most uh, useful topics for you guys today. We talk about how to continue going even after you've achieved success, how to set very specific goals, knowing where to start, how to assess yourself and your clients to see how ultimately you should begin and where your greatest opportunities for progress are. We talk about aligning goals and values. We talk about creating an adaptable system and becoming an adaptable coach and so, so much more. Today's podcast is brought to you by my favorite bubsnaturals.com. You guys know my favorite MCT powder, my favorite uh, my favorite collagen powder going into my coffee every single morning just starts my day right. If you're someone who hasn't tried the Intelligence Coffee before, you're missing out, head over to bubsnaturals.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 20% off. One of the reasons I love bubs on top of the fact they have literally the best quality products that exist is that they also give back to charity. They're giving back 10% of their profits to charity. That's massive. These guys have great hearts. They've become great personal friends of mine and just exceptional humans doing a great thing for the world. And I think more of us need to uh, ultimately take a page from Bob's Naturals and give back to the world. Let's all lift each other up. Let's all live our greatest life in a body that we absolutely love. Enjoy the podcast with Joe DeFranco. When you talk about like the best in the world at at what they do, and I've had the good fortune of working with some of those where even like the the top one percent of the professional athlete uh, clientele, you even have the upper echelon of that clientele where they're already at the top one percent. What separates the one percent of the one percent? I think from what I saw in my, and what I've uh, experienced is a combination of both genetics, obviously, like to make it to the highest level. um, There's certainly a genetic component because I've had my fair share of hardest worker in the room, like show up early, leave late, do everything right. Nutrition on point, you know, training with me for, from the time they were teenagers and through high school through college, yet they still didn't make it to the professional level. You know, in beginning of my career, I worked with a lot of football players. So, um, so many players that I worked with that, man, I wanted them to make it so bad because they worked so hard and they were, you know, the best player on their high school team or the, one of the best players on their college team, but they still, uh, they just didn't make it. And some of them were harder workers than, a lot of the NFL guys. So I, I, I can't answer this question without saying genetics does play a pretty big role, but the best of the best, what I found was um, 
and this is kind of like a 1A, 1B, they had the work ethic of someone who was like a long shot. They got the genetic gifts, but they also have, for whatever reason, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder where they they want to prove someone wrong. At, at one point, like I always think of uh, Brian Cushing, who I trained, he was what, depending on what publication you read when he was in high school, he was ranked either the number one linebacker in the country or number two. So to anyone's standard, this is literally one of the best in the world at what he does, but he just dwelled on and focused on that number two ranking and it pissed him off to like that. It just, it drove him. That's all he thought about. And he trained like someone who had horrible genetics and and needed to do everything right. And that type of training and work ethic with incredible genetics made him one of the best in the world at what he did. He ended up being a college All-American, you know, first round draft pick, played in the NFL for 10 years. Um, so it, it's that that optimal combination, I think, of genetics, but also work ethic. And then with the work ethic, the best athletes I've worked with who had the most success also were um, – okay with being coached and, and being told what they're not good at and accepting that and, you know, getting, getting better. So, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of gym owners, if a pro athlete walks in their doors, they're just thinking dollar signs. Oh, I'm going to take a picture of this guy. I'm going to use it for marketing. And it's more babysitting than actual development where I always prided myself on, Hey, if an NFL guy walked into my door, I want to try to get him better. I want to try to prolong his career by three, four five years. I want to help him make a couple, you know, couple extra million dollars. I don't want to just babysit him. And so some pro athletes you could tell are so used to just being told how great they are and, and how much better they are than everyone else. But I always tried to pride myself in finding we call it like the, the, the window of greatest adaptation. So like somebody might show up and they're already in the NFL and they're the strongest guy on their team. They, they have the best bench press and squat and they're just a savage in the weight room. And while I love strength training and that's my first love, I have to be able to say, you know what, getting you to go from a 475 pound bench to 500 pound bench that's not going to get us much better on the field next year. It's just going to require a whole lot of time and energy to do something that's not going to do much for you on the field. So where, where is the, the greatest window of adaptation? Maybe it's someone who had really poor mobility and they started getting little minor injuries and tweaks and they hated stretching and mobility and, and that type of stuff. But they did it anyway because they knew that's where they're going to get the best bang for their buck in training. So uh, long-winded answer. It's a combination of genetics, training, but not just training hard, training smart, and being able to accept where they might be lacking instead of just being told how great they are. What it sounds like you're, you're getting out there is ultimately Carol Dweck's concept of a growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right? Someone who has a true growth mindset, and I feel like I'm like this, you can take anyone's harsh criticism because it, it's not viewed as harsh criticism. It's just viewed as like, oh, I, I need to work on that, right? So if I had a coach like yourself and you said, hey, man, you're shit at this, I'd be like, okay, let's let's work on it twice as much. 
And people who have that growth mindset, from my experience as well, are the I mean, are the ones that succeed, and, and myself included. It was it was always like I was my own worst critic. I didn't need someone to tell me what I was wrong, what I was doing wrong. I was five steps ahead. <laughs> and yeah, so one thing I, I want to that came up from in that question there is, as a coach, as a trainer, did you ever have to do anything to remind your top level athletes of you know that that second place? Like so. I think the thing that that keeps people going sometimes in those scenarios is uh, the avoidance of complacency, right? The avoidance of like, now you've, now you've achieved it. I'll give you a story. I won't say who it is, but a friend of mine basically achieved like the pinnacle of what he wanted to do in his life at 35. And everyone goes, what'd you do? What did you do to uh, celebrate? And he goes, man, I sold everything I own and I invested more deeply in it. Like I basically just, you know, I went all in on even further. So it's like the idea of he, he started where everyone else stopped. Yeah. And this idea of like, how do you get, you know, maybe a high level athlete or the average person to avoid complacency? Cause it seems like such a common thing in our society. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that does separate the, the great coaches from, from just the good coaches. It's finding that, that deeper thing that drives each individual. And I, I don't, and that's the thing it's knowing each athlete, each client, whether it's an athlete or not is an individual and, and different things drive different people. And I learned this lesson real early on in my career, uh, as far as things that motivate me or things that motivate you might not mean shit to the, you know, the client we're training. So if I'm speaking in a language that is motivating to me, I might be doing that client a disservice because it means nothing to them. Some people are driven by money and they want that multi-million dollar contract. I've trained some pro athletes that have millions of dollars and they still drive old beat up cars. It means nothing to them. So, you know, telling them like, Hey, you don't, you want that? Don't you want that next, you know, contract extension that, that doesn't mean anything to them. So finding, and I think this is important from day one, um, and you might not get the answer day one, but just as important as the physical assessment that we do with every single athlete that walks through our doors, it's sitting down with them and getting them to kn- get, getting to know them as a human being and finding what their like deeper why is, what is their purpose? Like what, just keep asking more questions. Like I, I, ask so many questions. And so often, like, I know I start to annoy a lot of my clients, but like, I just keep going almost like the three-year-old that you give them the answer and they go, yeah, but why, but Mm -hmm. why, but, and you just got to keep going and going and going. That's what I do with most of my clients. And when you find their purpose and what drives them, then you could use that when it's one of those days that maybe they don't feel like training, they are going to, they want to quit. Like that's where you could step in. Um, just a funny, quick example. This is, uh, the other end of the spectrum of you got your pro athletes, but one of the first groups of athletes I ever trained was a female girls track and field team. I had 60 Girl, six zero. I trained at once at the gym. It was one of the most overwhelming, insane experiences of my career. But here I was the, I had a relationship with their track coach who was very into track, competed at a very high level, still to this day competes at the national level uh, for masters track and field. She runs the hundred and 200 and started coaching high school track, sent her whole team to me. 
I'm thinking, you know, I'm young, gung-ho trainer. I'm thinking, that, hey, they are coming to me to get stronger, get faster. The coach's goal is to win the state championship, the high school state championship. So everything I'm having them do, I'm having them drag sleds. They're doing reverse hypers, squatting. I'm I'm talking to these girls about, you know, getting jacked and getting faster and winning states. And like, even though they run track, I'm starting to quickly realize a lot of these girls don't give two shits. Like they kind of, they're running track because their parents made them. They happen to be genetically gifted and they're pretty good, but they're, they're not, I, I could just tell there's like a disconnect. One day I, it just happened right around prom season. These girl, I noticed they're all talking about pro, like getting fitted for their prom dresses. Well, who's buying what prom dress? So I start changing the way I speak to them instead of saying, Hey, this exercise is going to make you jacked or this exercise is going to help your first 10 meters. It's going to improve your acceleration. I'm saying things like, Hey, I heard you, you know, you guys are shopping for your prom dress. This one, th this exercise will make you look better in a strapless dress. This exercise will make you, you know, the, the prom dress fit better. And th these are all things that I could care less about as a coach, but as long as they're now, they're a little more invested in that sled drag. They're a little more invested in that reverse hyper, but I'm speaking to them on how their freaking prom dresses are going to fit. But I stuck with it because I realized that's what motivated them more than the track and field stuff as a side effect it became one of my best groups ever to train. They were so motivated during that prom season that they all worked harder because the exercises we were doing, as you know, like exercises that will help you get faster, run faster, jump higher. They're also, you know, going to quote unquote, show shape and tone your butt and your legs. And, you know, all these things that maybe high school girls are more into. So they're, getting the results they want, although it's for a different reason, as a side effect, their coach is telling me, holy crap, these girls are running faster. They're exploding out the blocks. They end up winning. I always find it one of my funniest stories because they ended up winning the state championship in a very, very uh, competitive bracket. And, and our state is super competitive with high school athletics and girls track and field, super competitive. I didn't talk to them the second half of our training. I never mentioned a sprint technique acceleration. I just kept speaking more their language. They in turn worked harder and we were all uh, happy in the end because we all got what, what they, what we wanted. They won the state championship. They looked better at prom. And then I developed that relationship. And then these girls ended up training with me for the next four years but I learned very quickly, this, this is 20 years ago now already. That was like my initial introduction in just because you're into something as a coach doesn't mean that's what your client's going to be into. So yeah. find out what makes them tick, find out their passion, their purpose, their, their why yep. use that. If you want to call it against them or, you, you know, use it in your training and you'll all be way happier with the end result. 
that's one of the most highly correlated things with succeeding in goal achievement is aligning it with your values. And a lot of people will um, set goals that are not aligned with their values. An example being, you know, I want to be wealthy and yet, you know, they say they want to be wealthy, but their values say they want Gucci shoes or something, you know, and they keep spending money on trinkets. So instead of investing it in consumables, instead of, you know, appreciable assets and people are, are like, oh, I'm not sure why I'm not getting wealthy. Well, because your goals and your values are not aligned. So that, that what, you're, what you're saying right there is really great. And it actually brings up an interesting question. Some coaches um, have their coaching style and it's who they are and they're known for that. And they stick inside that coaching style and maybe attract, attract a certain type of athlete sounds like what you're doing is you're creating almost a dynamic coaching style where you're trying to fit the athlete. Um, have you ever kind of gone back and forth on whether or not you should just be you and uh, I'm only going to be this way and I'm going to attract certain type of athletes or, or was it like uh, just, this is just who your personality is. It sounds like you're a pretty uh, adaptable guy in general, because obviously you've been very successful work with a wide array of audiences. Yeah. that And that's another great question and point. And it, Early in my career, I did battle with it a little bit because as a younger coach in my teens and, and in my early 20s, when I would visit coaches that were older than me and more experienced and, you know, without naming names, a lot of them were very set in their way. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is the music we play in my weight room and you're not going to change it. It's my weight room, my way, my, my, my. Yep. And I thought... And you do need a level of like, you do need to be able to command a room and, and, and demand respect from athletes, whether you're a gym owner, personal trainer, coach, that is very important. But I learned pretty quickly that you could be all those things. You could demand respect. You could command, you know, the, the attention in a room, but you don't have to, um, you know, push your values and, and the things that drive you onto your athletes. So I, I tried to have, my thing was always, people would say, Oh, you got so lucky at the, with the Franco's gym, you, the, a lot of the best athletes just walked into your doors. And while yes, I had a lot of great athletes walk through my doors. I also had a lot of horrible, like worst ath, most unathletic people you've ever seen in your life walk through my doors. But the thing that I was very, um, it made me, it makes me very proud to this day. And, uh, I really thinks it think it separated my gym from an atmosphere standpoint to other gyms was just that I didn't push my, my values as far as I shouldn't say values, as far as the things that drove me training wise, I didn't push that um, on any athlete. I didn't have only one style of training. We started referring to ourselves as like the mixed martial arts of strength and conditioning because we're well-versed in everything. We're going to treat each athlete like an individual. You come in here, you get evaluated, you go over what you think you need, then we're going to evaluate you. And as professionals, we're going to tell you what you need in order to get better. And our training style is going to be based on your, your strengths, your weaknesses, your goals, the time frame we have. So the, we weren't like just the strength guys. We weren't just the speed guys. We weren't just the kettlebell guys. Like the training evolved and changed depending on the athlete, but I wouldn't accept. I, I did only accept self-motivated athletes and clients. I don't care what motivates you. You could be 
money driven. You could be family driven. You could be whatever. I didn't care what it was as long as you came into my gym and you were ready and willing to work. Like I love training people. I love helping people, but I'm not the guy that's going to be like, come on, Ben, you could do it. And, and if you're like, nah, I don't really want to train today. I'm, I have more of the personality. Like, listen, if you don't want to train, I'm not oh. going to make you, it's not, I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. Right. If you want to, and you want my help and you're having a rough day, whatever it may be, I'm, I will be more than happy. And I love helping you. But so in that respect, I drew a hard line. Like, no, you self-motivated athletes only, but it wasn't, you didn't get kind of discriminated against. I don't care what motivates you, whether I, I, it could be anything. I would, I didn't care what it was as long as you came in and you wanted to be there. I never, I put one ad in a newspaper back when that's how long I've been doing this. Uh, newspaper ads were the way you promoted your gym back in the day. But even when that was the thing, I did one ad it was the worst money I ever spent. It didn't help at all. And I never did another ad, uh, no marketing whatsoever. It was all word of mouth. And, and because of that, I knew I was attracting the right athlete because if you weren't into training, if you didn't want to push yourself, if you didn't want to get better, if you didn't have thick enough skin to be able to be told, Hey, you suck at this. This is what you need to get better at. And we're going to help you get there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't come to my gym. And I've had a couple pro athletes come in because they heard it had a great reputation. They lasted one day. They never came back. And I never called those people. I didn't text them. I didn't beg them to come back. I, I wanted self-motivated, you know, athletes only. And to yeah. this day, my, my small private gym, that's how it operates. It's all word of mouth, all referral based. If you want to train, you want to get better. It's the best place in the world. If you need someone to coddle you and, and, you know, motivate you, I'm not, I am not the trainer for you, nor are uh, the other guys I have working with me. Awesome. And Joe, you're known for getting people strong and getting people fast. And so typically those things are um, in alignment, right? If you're trying to get faster, typically you get stronger, but at some point getting stronger can, can slow you down. And so I'd love to have you kind of delineate for us between, um, you know, how, what strength training looks like and then what, what speed training may look like and how you kind of differentiate when those things start to um, maybe diverge. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, that's why it's so important to, you, you have to have, you have to have an initial evaluation process. You need to know where you're starting. Uh, if you don't know where you're at, how do you know where to get, where you're going? You know, you, you, if you called and said, Hey, I want to come to your gym. My next, I need directions. My very next question should be what, where are you? Are you in New Jersey? Are you in Florida? Are you coming from another country? Like, we need to know where you're at. So how you manage all that. And as you know, there's never, the, the answer is always going to be, it depends. And I know that gets annoying to people, but someone comes in and they want to get faster. And we're doing um, a lot of times with younger athletes, just to give a general example, just getting them, like you said, in the, in the early stages, just getting a young, weak athlete stronger will get them faster, They'll get them stronger and, and everything improves. They jump higher, they run faster, et cetera. There does become a point where you could get, 
you're strong enough at that point. And now more strength training isn't going to necessarily make you faster. So, you know, I'm, I love strength. I'm a strength guy, but if, if strength was the be all end all, every high level power lifter in the world would also have the fastest 40 yard dash and hundred meter dash. We know it doesn't work like that. And in fact, at that extreme, extreme level, those guys would tell you themselves. Most of the guys in this world that could squat a thousand pounds, probably some of the slowest people. Um, actually, the the only person I ever had pull a hamstring running a 10 yard sprint was a power lifter. Uh, so it's like if all you do is lift, 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 lift and just build strength on top of strength, not necessarily going to get faster. The big question always becomes, okay, well, when do you know when you need more strength, when you need more speed? That's where I always say every workout there should be, you you should be measuring every single workout, even though we're not necessarily just testing our strength and speed every day. We're, we're training, we're building each and every workout, but within those sessions, if I'm running 10 yard sprints, as part of the warm up, or if our first exercise is to run 10 yard sprints, I'm timing them with an electric timing device. So I see how they compare to the previous week, the, the, the week, the month before that. Now, obviously you could have a, a, a bad workout here and there, but you want to look at the trends. If I have an athlete that is getting a little bit slower over the course of months, weeks, now I know, let me look at his programming. We might be doing a little bit too much strength. He might need more speed. If, you know, vice versa, if, if, they're, if we're doing a lot more sprinting, sometimes you could overdo the actual sprinting when trying to get faster and they start to stall, then you might need more strength training. The, the only way to measure that is each and every workout you're measuring, you're testing, and you can't have an ego as a coach. You need to be able to say, shit, what I'm doing right now, it, it's, it's not working as well as I thought. Let me put the brakes on and make a change before I waste you know, another three, four, five months. I think that's the biggest issue coaches have. We're, it's a very ego-driven field. And I say this all the time. I say, I write my workouts in pencil, not pen, because I know, and this happens, every single workout, at least one thing on my plan for that day, I'm probably going to end up changing based on how the athlete is acting, how they're reacting life. They, they could have gotten a fight with their girlfriend, their wife on the way to the gym. And today's not the best day to do max effort squats. So like every day is just like, um, you got to be ready to auto-regulate and, and make it a little change on the fly. But I'm, I'm constantly testing within the building process to see how things are going. And then I make little tweaks as we go. And then that enables us to, um, you know, program properly. So they make the bet, you know, con I, I say make continued progress, but obviously uh, progress isn't always perfectly linear. Perfect linear some yeah. forks in the road, but we do the best we can. Yeah. Strength and speed to me um, feels like this dynamic interplay between 
um, tone. So like fluidity and rigidity, because like obviously the stronger you get, the more rigid you're going to need to become. And obviously to become str- to become more to become faster, you have to maintain some degree of fluidity and mobility. So it's like this dynamic interplay between like creating muscles that are rigid and allowing them to still be relatively fluid to be able to access ranges of motion. And it's an interesting um, kind of polarity in the training, right? It's like, I want them to get rigid with this type of training, but I also need them to maintain fluidity. So there's, yeah, there's some interesting um, kind of thoughts there around, uh, you know, the state of the nervous system, right? Like how tuned is this nervous system? So my brain's going to like sympathetic, parasympathetic interplay. You know, an interesting, just for your listeners, and this is, this certainly isn't the be all end all, but it's a pretty damn good guide. If you're someone listening right now and you're, um, you like to train for performance. You you want to look good, but you want to be athletic. You want to be able to run fast, jump high, also be pretty jacked and strong, very simple test anyone can do. Uh, maybe some people have heard of this, but we use this as part as part of our initial evaluation. After a warm up, perform a vertical jump, regular vertical jump, where you have that a counter movement where you you know squat down, explode back up, jump as high as you can. Generally, we'll give an athlete two or three tries, give them full amount of recovery between each jump, then let them rest. And if you don't have a, um, a specific device like the Vertec or a jump mat, you could even put a little chalk on your fingertips, stand right up against the wall, touch, reach up as high as you can, make a little chalk mark, then re-chalk your finger again, jump up and touch the wall. The distance between your two chalk marks mm-hmm. is a pretty good indication of your vertical jump. So if you have you know, 15 inches between those two marks, you have a 15-inch vertical jump just to throw that out there. I don't want to, um, take for granted. Everyone has uh, a jump mat, $500 jump mat at their gym, although they are super valuable. Uh, that's what we use right now. But so regardless of how you test, you just want to make sure you're doing the, however you test, you stay consistent with the, the way you're measuring the vert, do your regular vertical jump with a counter movement, then rest do another one or two jumps where you squat down, but you pause in the bottom position, hold it for a good three to five seconds. Don't move. So we're basically negating the effects of the stretch shortening cycle. We know our muscles work kind of like elastic bands, but we're taking that elasticity out of it. We're going to descend down, hold 1001, 1002, 1003, And then without moving at all, no little counter movement, jump up as high as you can. So that's more of like a strength-based jump. That shouldn't be as high. So basically, on average, most people's uh, jump without the counter movement, the strength-based jump where you pause, is going to be about 85% of your regular vertical jump with a counter movement. Now, I've had... Like a power lifter, just to give an extreme example, I've had stronger athletes that have the same vertical jump without the counter movement. So that's like, again, you get an 800-pound squatter, 900-pound squatter that's just all strength power lifter. They probably are stronger than they are fast. Whereas think of the most athletic, like NFL wide receiver, the lean, like wiry guy with the 42 inch vertical jump, that guy normally, if you take away 
their strength, which is the elasticity, that more reactive component of their muscles, they're not going to jump as high. They are faster than they are strong. So a little trick training wise, and this isn't 100% foolproof, but for 95% of people listening right now, if you want to know how will I get the best bang from my buck out of training, if I want that optimal combination of strength and speed, do that little test on yourself wherever you lack the power lifter whose static jump is just as high as his counter movement jump. That guy should focus more on plyos and, and maybe lifting submaximally more for speed, uh, you know, incorporating eventually incorporating more short sprints into their program and the other athlete that's, you know, quicker than they are strong might benefit more from some good old fashioned strength training. Um, so that's an easy way for the, for the average person to improve their, their strength and or speed. And then the, the interesting then conversation, and I don't want to confuse things becomes though at the highest level, you need to make a decision, uh, as to whether or not it's worth doubling or tripling down on someone's strength, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to bring up their weaknesses. Cause I have had athletes, you, you work with enough people, you get every exception to the rule. You start working with enough people, you kind of see everything, but I've had athletes that were more like faster than they are strong, but too much strength work still didn't, they still weren't one of the strongest athletes, but it started taking away from their speed. Mm -hmm. So they were actually better off just being like, Hey, I'm a reactive explosive athlete. I work better with the majority of my training being more plyos, more sprints, more med ball throws. Uh, sometimes it is better at the higher level to double and triple down on your strengths rather than try to bring up a weakness. That's never going to be a strength anyway. How much are you looking at kind of sports specificity with your exercise selection and, and, uh, training, um, you know, choices, training selections, whether or not, you know, you get, you have a wide receiver and, you know, you know, he's, his body's going to be in certain positions, certain angles versus a lineman who's going to be completely different. Uh, is that things you're looking at? Yes. We do know that, uh, power is specifically, if you want to narrow down sports in general, you know, the number one physical quality, I think for all athletes, if you had to pick one, there's many, but power, you know, it's, which is basically the ability to display your strength quickly. Just being strong alone isn't going to get you that far in, in many sports other than powerlifting, uh, maybe Olympic weightlifting, but, um, we do know power is plain specific. So yes, where I just gave the vertical jump as an example, but if you play a sport like football or you're trying to improve your 100 meter dash, you're actually better off focusing more on power movements in the, the horizontal plane. That's why you see me doing things like I love, you know, he both heavy sled pushes, lighter sled pushes for speed because it mimics that you know, 10, 10 yard sprint, 40 yard sprint, hundred meters. If you want to, uh, a baseball pitcher, if you want to throw harder, we've seen a better correlation with lateral jumps. I, I call them skater jumps. They're also called Haydn's H E 
I-D-E-N-S. If you wanted to look those up, it's basically a lateral jump where I push off my right foot and jump to my left. And then you land on your left, push off your left, jump to your right. Um, we noticed a bigger correlation with pitchers at both, you know, high school, college and major league level will be very good at that exercise. Cause if you could picture a, a pitch, it's basically a lateral hop with a little with rotation in there. That example matches that much better than say a vertical jump. Not that the vertical jump is bad and all general, you know, GPP, general physical preparedness has its place and it's actually very important, but it's just knowing when to place certain things. So GPP would be more in the earlier stages of the off season. And when you're working with athletes, we want to get closer to the athletic uh, event or movement or skill that we're trying to improve. So yes, the, the exercises would then, um, we, we'd get more towards specificity and, uh, you know, our plyos are going to be more same direction, duration, speed of the movement that we're trying to improve. That makes a lot of sense. Now that perhaps brings up the, the kind of counterpoint of, of, you know, do, maybe doing the wrong thing. Sometimes are you ever concerned of like creating compensation patterns in athletes that are going to somehow take away from the performance? <clears throat> yes. Um, that's again, where, Ultimately, when it comes to, uh, if you're training athletes, <clears throat> whatever sport they are playing, what they're trying to improve, that's why it's so important that they need to give you feedback and they need to continue playing their sport. So how do we know if we're negatively impacting their sport? They, they tell us, Hey, Joe's, you know, thankfully this hasn't happened a lot, but if you're a coach and a pitcher comes to you trying to put five miles an hour on their fastball. And they say, Hey, ever since I started training with you, my fastball went from 85 miles an hour to 81. If, if all other factors have been equal, yes, you need to, to look at your training. And one of those things could be, and this is such a, it's, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because there is such a fine line between you know, uh, training specificity and you have Verkashansky's principle of dynamic correspondence, which basically states in order for a movement or a lift in the gym to be truly considered like sport specific or functional, it needs to match the duration, the direction and the speed of the movement we're trying to improve. But that doesn't mean we just mimic the movement with a weight in our hand, you know, mm -hmm. that it doesn't mean, Oh, as a boxer, I hold 10 pound dumbbells and, and I start throwing punches with 10 pound dumbbells. Cause that's too specific where now, as Ben mentioned, now you could start screwing up the actual skill of the sport. So there's a fine line between, you know, specificity in the weight room and true specificity. I feel the only true sport specific movement patterns are playing the sport itself. That's why I feel most strength and conditioning coaches should be spending more time developing the general qualities. And you'll be shocked at how many high level pro athletes, th this is a huge misconception. People think, and I know I'm, I'm getting a little bit off on a tangent, but this is very important because it's so misunderstood 
most people, when they would hear, oh, oh, you train a lot of pro athletes, they think, wow, every NFL player you have must, much, must bench press over 500 pounds and squat over 1,000 pounds, and they must be in this ridiculous, incredible shape. It's actually the opposite. Like they're, it's, it's really amazing when you work with enough pro athletes how most of them are so skilled at their technical sport. Like I have NFL linemen are the greatest example I've worked with. Like some of these guys walk in the gym and they're like fat and sloppy and they, they got, you know, 30% body fat yet on the field, man, you would be shocked at their, their technical ability or like if they're messing around with you and they throw a little punch, they'll, they'll knock you across the room yet. I can't tell you how many 330, 350 pound linemen I trained that couldn't even bench press 315, but man, with their long ass arms and their leverage and their technical skill, they'll, they'll throw you into the next room, into another zip code. What they need more of is just GPP. A lot of them just lack like general fitness and general strength and general mobility and I found myself as I worked with more and more pro athletes, if you looked at the programming, it actually was getting more and more basic and more GPP than earlier in my career. I thought, oh my God, this pro athlete just walked into my gym. I got to show them how smart I am and how many cool exercises I know. It's the exact opposite. Most of those guys and girls need general physical prep. They need basic level of aerobic conditioning, basic levels of strength, movement quality. Most of them never learned how to, how to move efficiently. So now they develop strength on top of dysfunction. And now, you know, they got 500 pounds on their back in their, in their weight room workouts, but you watch them squat and you're like, Oh my God, that's doing way more harm than good. As a coach, I could do the biggest service I could do is probably take some weight off this guy's back and just teach him how to move better. And as I've gotten older, it's funny. I've, I always had this reputation for being kind of a meathead and I love strength training and I love lifting and I love the gym, but I've become more like the, the movement quality guy and, and telling guys to take more weight off the bar and let's spend more time on mobility. Like it's crazy how it's just, uh, you sound like me, Joe. Different from uh, what I what I was twenty years ago. Dude, that's my reputation, right? Is like I'm 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 the guy preaching like structural alignment. I'm like you, you can't you can't put a, a bigger engine in a car that's alignment's broken. Exactly, like, it's just a stupid idea, right? So we we got we got to give you a better steering wheel before we can give you better better uh, access to your gas pedal. We'll say or a bigger engine. That's hundred percent. But that's not it's not fun. It's not sexy for an Instagram post, unfortunately. Dude, so true. But honestly, that's what ninety five percent of people need to hear. Is like, man, if you move like shit, getting stronger is the worst thing for you. But everyone's yes. so focused on, I want, I want to, I want to lift, I want PRs, and like, eh, maybe not the best idea. Not at all. And I, I, I've said this a million times over the last couple of years. If I love, I could, you know, talk all day, all week with you. I love talking training. If I was going to narrow it all down in my 25 years of training, training clients, and seeing what I've seen. If you could, the one thing you could do today, and it's, it's not going to happen in one day, but the, if you want one focus as a guy that's had 
four back surgeries, shoulder surgery. I've put my body through hell. I've competed at a high level. I've destroyed my body doing dumb things in the weight room. Uh, but I look back and I go, man, if you could do one thing, if I could, if, and I, this is right up your alley, I would say moving well, that move well, that's the one thing you could yep. do today yep. to prevent injury, pain, surgery, problems, five, 10, 20 years down the road, just move better. If you can't, if you can't hinge properly and pick up the piece of garbage off the floor, you shouldn't be deadlifting. If you can't do a bodyweight squat, you shouldn't be barbell squatting. If you can't do a perfect push-up, you shouldn't be barbell benching. But how many of us skip that foundational quality movement and we just barbell bench and barbell squat? And that's why strength training now gets a bad rap as destroying your body because it has to a lot of people, but not because it's inherently bad. It's because we've done it improperly yeah. for so many years. Strength should make you all my clients that are over 40, over 50, they feel the worst when we don't train for totally. two or three days. Yep. It's not like it used to be, Oh man, I trained with the Franco. I'm freaking hurt. I'm sore for a week. I've gotten smarter now where my, the biggest compliment I get is shit, man, I've been traveling for a couple of days. I haven't been able to get my workouts in. I can't believe how much worse I feel when I don't train with you as opposed to, you know, it used to be, man, I trained with you and my frigging body's destroyed. Like those days for me are over. Yeah. Everyone that enters my world goes through, you know, a one to three month foundational phase and it's literally movement quality. It's right. Structural balance, uh, improving the way your nervous system receives the information, improving your ability to control arousal states. So people are coming in, they're, they're too uh, hypertoned or, or maybe they're too flaccid. So we're teaching them to control arousal states with whether it be breath work or, or just like teaching them how to actually create physical tone in their body. So man, you're so right. When you say that I talk to people in the gym every day and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm this old and I've got this injury this injury, this is just, it's just part of the course. It's just part of, part of this game. I'm like, you're wrong. You're just doing it wrong. Yeah. People don't get that. They think that elbow pain and shoulder pain and knee pain is like, it's supposed to be part of this, but in fact, it's supposed to be reversing it or, or, or getting you out of it. But just when done correctly, it simply can't. A hundred percent. Ben, when you were, when you were competing at a high level, did you, did you know this then? Were you as into the movement quality stuff back then, yep. or have so, you gotten more into this now? No, so for me, it started in 2007. Um, so I was, um, you know, like most people, I have, I have this kind of saying that I often joke around is like before 30, you train with your balls and after 30, you train with your brains. <laughs> and, and so when I, when I was, uh, when I was 2007, I actually was 26 and uh, I was in so much pain from, from just being like everybody else and training as hard as I possibly could. I couldn't even walk upstairs. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I met this one guy, his name's Peter, unfortunately he's passed away, took me under his wing and literally taught me everything he knew. And he is, you know, still to this day would be one of the smartest people I've ever met when it comes to exercise. And he mentored me for about five years before he passed. And it completely changed everything I did. So 2007 was, I was uh, the year before I turned pro. And so for four years after turning pro that year before pro, and then four years after he mentored me and everything I did. And, and it was just, just about movement quality. And I put on so much muscle and it wasn't just the amount of muscle I put on. It was the balance, right? So in my early days, I was very imbalanced. I had strengths and weaknesses. And when I learned how to train it correctly, all the imbalances went away. All the joint pain went away. All, like I, I started to overcome all those quote unquote weak body parts. And I was like, Oh, this, is just because I didn't know how to train it before. Your body has these, these structural predispositions and your body wants to move really well in some movements and poorly in others. 
But I said, everybody, that doesn't mean you can't build them. It just means you haven't learned how to do it yet. Uh, that's very cool that you got that information before turning pro, though. I, di I didn't know that. Yeah, man, it was it was a game changer for me. And like with the amount of knee pain I had, I literally I had to go sideways upstairs. I had to go like it was ridiculous because I was I was you know known for working very very hard, but that sometimes as I say, like the bigger the engine, uh, the better the steering needs to be. And my steering was just not there, so the bodies would get really tight and rigid, and it started to hurt. And I was I was so stubborn. I'm like I'm gonna keep working hard, and this shit starts to break. And I'm, I'm so man, I'm so blessed. I call the guy my angel to this day. Not only did he, he make my career possible, but probably uh, you know just allowed me to. Put on so much more muscle in a safe way on top of giving me a career. Oh yeah. It, it's so funny. You use that, your expression you use about like training with your balls. Uh, we, we say, but it's tough to get this across when before people are kind of, a lot of people wait once they get injured, then they seek you out and look yeah. for a better way. But, um, we say, if you, if you learn to train like you're 45, when you're 25, before all the injuries happen, you'll feel like you're 25 forever. I mean, yep. But unfortunately, like I know for me and not, and not that I trained completely wrong, but I definitely, totally. it was more just balls to the wall. I only, not that it's the only thing I knew, but my brain in my mind, the, the only way to progress that mattered was putting more weight on the bar. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. Now we have a list, like even in the gym of, I could ramble off 20 things that you could do to make an exercise, to progress an exercise, make it more difficult yep. while having to go lighter. And, you yep. know, there's more ways to progressively overload than just add more weight to the bar. Um, but these are all things that it took a couple injuries and surgeries. Totally. And the simplest way to explain it is like, Hey man, if you're, if you're driving your car at 60 miles an hour, it's okay. If your alignment's a little off, if you're driving at hundred miles an hour, your alignment's got to be really, really on point. If you're driving at 150, like you're, you're really, you're really, put into the metal, your alignment's got to be perfect or you're going to ultimately break. Right. And that's yeah. just like what you're doing. The stronger you get, the better it's got to be. Right. So like the margin for error when you're weak, it doesn't matter when you're a kid and you're in your week, you can do whatever you want. You're not hurt yourself because the, the joints can take that wear. But as soon as you start to get some horsepower behind it, you're in big yeah. trouble. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, man. Cool. So how much are you looking at, uh, the, the factors outside of the gym with respect to your athletes? Like, are you managing nutrition? Are you managing stress and HRV? Are you managing the lifestyle interventions? Uh, yeah. I, you know, again, the best you can, but we, we, we can't be with all of our athletes or clients 24 seven, as we know, but we also account for all those the best we can. I don't do, we usually start the younger kids, that are so, so bad with nutrition, we'll get them started with the basics of like, Hey, you know, maybe instead of drinking a liter of soda every day, let's cut out the soda. Like I, I go by the approach of working with so many kids early on. Um, if you give them too much to think about, they, they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. So we go by, you know, one at a time, one to two things max at a time, yeah. almost like, if you're teaching a new exercise, we focus on one main cue. Totally. Yeah. And you, you know, you see these coaches that try to sound smart. They're yelling 20 different things while somebody's squatting, like you're, right. you're doing way more harm than good. Yep. So we approach the lifestyle lifestyle outside of the gym stuff the same way. Usually the nutrition is atrocious. So we'll get them just drinking more water instead of soda or beer. And totally, once yep. they do that, it's like, yep. we'll have them write everything down. Did you yep. do that? That alone is going to make a change because now they're training with us and we made a little change. 
you nutritionally. Now they did that. Okay. Now, you know, let, let's cut out the McDonald's, you know, freaking mm. five times a week. Like, can we cut that down to three times a week instead of five? And yeah. we make small same. changes. And, yeah. um, it's funny cause some people like parents will see that and they've, they've, you know, lashed out sometimes and been like, well, they shouldn't be eating McDonald's at all. Cause that's literally a, a conversation I would have. I've had pro athletes that eat McDonald's that came to me and said every morning, that's what I have as my first meal. I go to McDonald's. So my thing, I've tried to get them types to cut it all out. We know that you shouldn't be having any of it, but right. if you're used to be eating it seven times a day, I just learned that's one of those things where on paper, I might not you know, look like a great trainer, but I know in the real world, what's going to, what's going to get, to you know, really register with this person and make the longer lifestyle changes. And that's saying, hey, instead of doing that seven times a week, can we cut down to three yeah. to start? And th that's doable. And then once they get it to three, we go to two, we go to one. Now they don't need their McDonald's anymore. Now it might take a little bit longer, but I've been doing this long enough now. I have clients right now that I've been working with 17 years oh. straight. I've had clients you know, 10 years, 17. Like I, I've worked with enough people long-term to know that's what really matters. So it's not so much about uh, early in my career it was a lot of quick fix stuff. I would get guys uh, coming for the NFL combine and I'd have six weeks and it would just be like a, a quick fix. Let's get them to look good for NFL scouts so they could put some money in their pocket. But now it's more clients that we get. It's more long-term approach, more general pop, more uh, NFL and pro athletes coming to us at the end of their career and, and wanting lifestyle changes because yeah. they want to be around for their kids for long periods of time. So I've learned to kind of, you know, make the goal when we come up with their goals, I make sure to make them realistic, you know, very specific, realistic, not that I'm a guy that believes anybody could do anything, but within reason, like you're not going to put on a hundred pounds of muscle in a year. You could maybe do it, but we try to just manage expectations and make more realistic changes. So with the outside of gym stuff, we're constantly hounding them. We have a nutritionist. We work with doctors in all different fields that we refer our, our athletes and our clients to. Um, every, I, I still think you can't undervalue just developing relationships with your clients and having a conversation. Uh, when I see so many trainers like, they're a new client walks in and they just, they, they have them sign the waiver and they put them through the workout. Like, how do you, how can you just put someone through a workout? You know, nothing about them. You, right. Again, like we spoke about before, you don't know you didn't do any kind of physical assessment. You haven't gone over their goals. You don't know what makes them tick, what their yeah. purpose is. So every single session, and I mentioned this before, my clients almost, they get annoyed with me because I'm asking I ask a million and one questions. How was your day today? How do you feel? How'd you feel after the last workout? What did you do? We work with a lot of athletes. So it's not just what we did in the gym. How did you feel after your last workout with me? How many times, how many jujitsu sessions have you had since Wednesday? Oh, it's only Friday, but you've had seven freaking jujitsu classes. Like now 
that's going to make me change. I'm going to have to change my workout just because I have something written on paper for that day. My ego isn't so big that I'm like, Hey, this is the workout. We have to do it. Even though you just told me you beat the hell out of your body in the last two days. Uh, so I'd be lying if I say I have everything under control, but we do everything we can to manage the outside of gym stuff, the, uh, from their relationships with their girlfriends, wives, parents, school, uh, stress levels. How did you sleep? A lot of them, uh, will wear heart rate monitors, uh, the aura ring, things like that. We'll go over their results from that day, the previous day before we start training. So we gather as much information as, um, humanly possible without taking up the entire, hour, hour and a half that I have with them. But yep. it's to answer your question, it's uh it's addressed as as much as humanly possible with yeah. every single athlete because yeah. it's yeah. it's just it can't be over if you're overlooking it, you're missing a huge, huge piece. Yeah. I, your clients are with you for one hour, maybe two tops. There's 24 hours in a day, seven yeah. days in a week. If you're not managing that other stuff, you're not going to look as good as the trainer, because you're not going to get the results if you're not at least helping uh, a little bit with the, with the outside of the gym stuff. Yeah. You know, one thing you probably do, uh, you, I'm sure you do, you've been doing as long as you, you've been training people is, and I teach my coaches this, it's like, you can, you can unconsciously or, or eventually make it conscious, read people's body language, read their facial expressions, read the amount of tone, read, read the, the cadence at which they're speaking, see what's happening in their eyes. You know so much about what's happening at the level of their nervous system just by reading them, right? So oh, you can 100%. tell if someone's highly stressed, someone's highly parasympathetic, you, you can read it all. So having that two to three minute conversation before you train or, or as you're moving toward training, if you become conscious of what the nervous system is telling you, it's it's often just telling a story about like, hey, how did they sleep the night before you? you know, are they talking really fast or are, are they overstimulated, understimulated? Like, you know, how, how quick are they to respond? And all those things are telling a story. Yeah. It's, and it's, so I'm glad you brought that up because while I say I ask them a million questions, you know, yeah. five minutes, I don't necessarily always listen to the answers either. Yeah. Um, it's how they're responding. Yes. Because yeah. every, anyone who works with a high level athlete knows when you say, Hey, how you feeling? You're getting the Good. answer's gonna be great. Oh, <laughs> great. great. <laughs> Meanwhile, like these MMA guys, they got a big black eye, they're limp, they can't even stand up straight. Oh, yeah. I'm great. Yeah, you don't look great. Uh, so you gotta, yes, ask questions, listen, but at the end of the day, it's it's the body language. One of my little tricks you mentioned, you know, it's funny, you could tell like you've worked with a lot of people because you know one of the things when I'm working with groups of athletes what determines the length of my warm up a lot of times if they're all chatterbox like talking 100 miles an hour while i'm trying to put them through the warm up and i know they're energetic they're ready to go i'll cut the warm up in half and we'll just start training whereas when it's like the talkative guys are a little quieter they're kind of they're, they're lagging a little bit i know i might have to you know we might have to warm up a little bit longer and, and they might need just a little bit more to get their body going. And it's funny, it, you go that extra, maybe three to five minutes. And now they're talking a little bit more. They got their energy back. And now, you know, they, they woke up, whatever you want to call it, but being able to read the room, whether they're talking mm-hmm. too much, too little body language, are they moping around? Like that's, 
number one. Uh, yeah. That's way more important than actually what they're saying. You know, it's been a big one for me, Joe, is, is realizing that. Uh, so example being I, my nature is very parasympathetic. I'm, I'm very, um, you know, I'm very kind of in this recovery mode all the time. And I think that's what allowed me to be a great bodybuilder. And so when I go into the gym, I need more stimulus to get me going. Like I'm the type of guy, if I don't like, through my entire university career, if I was training, I was either squatting one day or deadlifting that squatting and deadlifting because that's what turned up my nervous system. So I needed yeah. that like huge amount of stimulus to get me tuned up so that I could be have better workouts. If I didn't do it, my workouts were shit. Whereas you have other guys who are who are very sympathetic in nature. They tend to be a little bit leaner, a little bit skinnier, a little bit more high paced, like pro probably like you. And and so you need less stimulus to get going, right? Like you're you're lean by nature, you're muscular, but uh, you probably are, are very sympathetic. So you're very strong, you're very fast. Um, those guys tend to just need less stimulus. So it's been an interesting uh, thing for me to note is like how, how we can kind of um, look at somebody's nature and then adapt that to what the environment that they or their, their lifestyle is kind of, uh, you know, overlapping. And then, okay, now we can determine how much time they need to warm up and how much time they need to train. That's been a very uh, powerful awareness for me to have. And, and I think there's a guy who actually went through one of your classes. He used to work for me and he was, you know, when we taught him that it was like his, his training just went to a whole new level. Cause he always, he always needed like two, uh, two scoops of pre-workout to get going. I'm like, yeah. you don't need that. You simply need to do something that's highly neurological in nature. It's funny you bring that up because I, I love this stuff because it's so interesting. We speaking of kind of generally mentioning the warming up a little bit longer, maybe if you need it, but those like yourself that you said, we have athletes that are maybe a little bit more quieter, milder, you know, the demeanor they, they come in. I would incorporate more sprints, jumps, med ball throws in their warmup, just more the high CNS type, mm -hmm. high neurological demand type exercises as that natural stimulant. You're not enough, not to crush them or anything, but low reps, a few sets of like box jumps, med ball yep. slams, you know, a couple short sprints. And then you see them waking up and then you put them through the workout. Whereas the ones that come in and they're talking hundred miles an hour, they don't necessarily need more sprints and med ball slams. They could kind of get right into their workout. Totally. And yep. It's those little, little, little nuances that I love. And I really think separate the, the great coaches from the, the, you know, the average coaches out there. Those are the things you don't necessarily read about in books and in, in a, somebody's program, those little nuances, man, they make yeah. such a big difference. Uh, I love that stuff. Yeah. And that's the difference between you know, working with somebody in person and working with somebody who's just like pulling a program yeah. offline. Everyone's like, Oh, I'm going to get a program online. I'm like, well, you can, but it may not be suitable to you. Cause an example for me, like my, when other people are finishing their workout, I'm feeling like I'm just getting going. Like I'm just starting, <laughs> I'm just starting to break a sweat. I'm starting to get, catch a pump. So I would often do double volume or even double density to what other athletes are doing because my body could, could recover from my body actually loved it. Whereas if you give that to someone who's probably built like you, you're, you're going to be overtrained. No problem. Right. You're, yeah. you're, like you're so strong and so sympathetic in nature. Your body's going to go into that kind of overtraining state almost, almost immediately. And that's massive for athletes. Big, huge. Oh, it's funny. You bring that up. Cause that's exactly how I was mm -hmm. now after shoulder surgery, I've kind of, and I don't know if I'll stay like this, but past few months that I've been able to train again, I flip flopped it where almost more of bodybuilding, mm -hmm. I call it the bodybuilding way where whether you want to call it like pre-exhaust or whatever, I was always the working with athletes. You do the exercises with the highest central nervous system demand early in the workout. Mm -hmm. You know, you, we start from fastest to slowest compound movement to isolation movement. But for me now, 
because the shoulder's not a hundred percent, it, I feel way better midway through my workout. So if I'm going to do something like a heavy barbell bench press, instead of starting with it, I'm now doing it, you know, as the third or fourth exercise after I have a little pump, I broke a sweat feels much better. So again, just speaking of like details and nuance type things, there's always, that's why it, it always depends. Like you nailed it with how I used to train and how I am, but for this period of moment in my life coming off a of shoulder surgery, I'm doing more the opposite because it takes the shoulder a little bit longer to feel good. So now I need a couple exercises first, that little pump first. So I'm almost training more like a bodybuilder for the first time in my life feels way better uh, than it did the previous 25 years. Awesome. Joe, tell me about your certification, man. You've been doing this for a couple of years now and I've heard nothing but great things. Thank you. Uh, we, we, uh, pride ourselves on it being one of the most practical, usable certs. Both uh, Jim Smith, Smitty, and I, my partner, who co-created the curriculum, we we both had every, literally, I'm not uh, misusing the word, we, between us, had every certification coming up uh, when we were younger. And it was one of those things where we were talking one day and we're talking about, man, all the what's what certification helped you out the most? And he was like, you know, there wasn't really many, you know, that, that helped me. I learned stuff. Like I left there with some new knowledge in my brain, but he, we both said the same thing. I go, yeah, I remember after college, I, I got my degree in exercise phys that I was, um, I had my NASM, sir. I had my CS, uh, the CSCS, the, uh, personal trainer, everyone you could name. And they all, like I learned stuff definitely, but I remember going to the gym on Monday and I had my client and it was one of my very first clients. I'll never forget. I started the warm up with a body weight squat and she couldn't, I said, okay, we're going to start with 10 body weight squats. And this woman goes, I can't squat. I, I, uh, I forget if she said she had knee surgery or she just hurt her knee. And now I'm, I'm like, Oh shit, what do I do? Like I, I'm, I had my warm up all written out my workout first rep of the first exercise of the first set. She can't do now what yeah. I have every certification under the sun and I don't know what the hell to do. Yeah. That was like, uh, it, so we both shared like a hundred stories like that. And we said, man, wouldn't it be cool to create a curriculum of, information and just wisdom that we could put these trainers and coaches through. And then when they go to work, they go to the gym on Monday, they're actually better. And they know what to do when your client goes, Oh, I can't squat. My knee hurts. Or oh, I just had back surgery or, and everyone in between. Yep. Uh, so that's basically our certification. We cover a to Z from, we start with breathing, just like you mentioned, you know, one of those type of topics that Initially, I was like, ah, this is kind of boring. I just want to lift weights. But the difference it made yeah. at me being more like high strung type A when I learned more about diaphragmatic breathing and man, it just opened up a whole nother world. So we go from breathing to uh, client assessments, very easy to understand, applicable client assessments that will help you become a better trainer today, then teaching the fundamental movement patterns and regressions 
to every single movement because we know you could teach a perfect squat, but the problem is when you go to teach that to another client, nine out of 10, it's not going to look anything like we know it should look. So now what do you do? So we have a a huge regression progression model for all the fundamental movement patterns, our, our, our strength training template. Then I have a, a basic speed and power development for those who are working with athletes or even just general pop. We do feel believe should uh, maintain some level of athleticism and power because it is the first thing we lose yep. as we age. Uh, and then program design. We, we don't have a program where it's, this is our program, but it's more concepts of how to put together a properly designed program based on the initial assessment. So that's pretty much the, the, uh, sir, in a nutshell from breathing, taking a client through an assessment, teaching strength, power, speed development, warm up protocol is in there obviously. And then how to design uh, a program. And, um, one thing that upgraded it where now, we have it. It's an online course because mm-hmm. we just felt there was so much information that we wanted people to have lifetime access to it. We realized when we were teaching, everybody's scrambling, writing notes. They're not really paying attention. Uh, so we said we had everything professionally recorded. It's online. When you sign up, you have lifetime access to all the video modules. And then every quarter or multiple times each quarter, we do in-person practicals where you could come and learn in person. We go over the assessment and some of the practical aspects of the course. Very cool. That's, but that's in addition to, so it's all online with an optional in-person aspect of the course that we offer a few times a year. Um, but yeah, we've been doing it for eight years now it's growing. I think we have coaches in 13 or 14 different countries all, uh, all over the United States and, uh, just trying to continue spread, spreading the good word and, and helping create some qualified coaches out there. Good for you, man. Now, where can people reach out to you or learn more about the cert? The cert is CPPS coaches. It's certified physical preparation specialist. So cppscoaches.com. And then uh, best place to find me is on Instagram at DeFranco's gym. And my podcast comes out every Thursday. It's the industrial strength show. uh, And that's on all the regular podcasting platforms. Great guests, great information on that show. I listened to many times, Joe. Thank you for being a guest on mine, man. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it, man. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I never take your attention for granted. I'm so grateful for you being here. I have a sincere desire to help you, to help you become a better athlete, to help you become a better coach. If you find value in these podcasts, I would absolutely love it. If you would share, definitely leave us a comment, leave us a review. You can now subscribe on YouTube and you could for a while, but now we're actually getting back into publishing these videos on YouTube. So if you're someone who likes to consume content on YouTube, head over to YouTube and don't forget to subscribe to the Muscle Intelligence channel. This podcast, again, is brought to you by Bub naturals.com the greatest mct powder and collagen on the planet here's why you should be using mct powder mct is an incredible fat it's an incredible opportunity to fuel your mind 
very quick acting energy. It's called a medium chain triglyceride. It's a fast acting fat that immediately goes into the cells to be used as energy, doesn't get stored as fat, and ultimately can fuel your brain and fuel your performance. I love consuming MCT, whether it be pre-workout in my shake, or whether it be in the morning in my coffee, or just ultimately anytime when you're looking for a little boost. It's great on a ketogenic diet. It's great on a low-carb diet, a great way to just get some instant energy. If you're lacking it, this is the way to go. Bob's Naturals has the best quality MCT. It dissolves perfectly into even room temperature beverages. I actually put in my cold brew as well, which just makes it absolutely glorious. It helps me replace adding things like almond milk, which just adds huge amounts of calories. And I don't want to do it. I don't feel as great as I do on MCT and collagen from Bubs. Bubsnaturals.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 10, 20% off. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.